Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. Every year, new technologies emerge that have the potential, or claim to have the potential, to revolutionize mathematics education. Countries around the world focus on improving the way mathematics is taught in their schools, and technology often plays a big role in that. However, it is widely recognized that technology does not always have the impact it was hoped to have. The OECD has declared that despite considerable investments in computers, internet connections, and software for education use, there's little solid evidence that greater computer use among students leads to better scores in mathematics and reading. However, there are many very effective technologies and ways of using them that can greatly improve mathematics education. In this episode, I'm joined by an expert in math education to discuss key ways that technologies can help improve math education in schools. Dr. Naomi Norman is a creative, reflective, and strategic consultant, researcher, reviewer, and author whose work spans research and practice in mathematics education. She works with some of the most prominent universities and educational companies around the world. Naomi obtained her doctorate in math education at Oxford University and has extensive consultancy, research, writing experience in the field. She has worked as a consultant on London 2012, BBC, Granada Media, Sesame Workshop, Pearson, Oxford University Press, Collins, and the UK government's Department of Education, just to name a few. Naomi also held posts as Director of Learning at Epic, now Leo Learning, one of UK's leading e-learning companies. In academia, she has undertaken research contracts for Oxford University, Imperial College London, and Pearson. Thank you very much, Naomi, for joining me today. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for asking me. So I know you have worked on many very interesting projects in education and specifically in math education, and you've worked for some of the leading educational companies in the world. So can you tell me a little bit about the kind of work that you do and an overview of the field of math education that you work in? Right, well, it's, it's quite broad. So just to give you a few examples, I guess, um, I might be asked, for example, by an education publisher, how to respond to a new emphasis in a countrywide maths curriculum. So say a new focus on problem solving, which has happened quite a lot in the past few years. A lot of countries have decided that they really want to have a focus less on knowledge and skills and more on mathematical problem solving Mm -hmm. so on a simplistic level I guess a curriculum that's moved away from not only teaching students how to add but also trying to teach them that given a problem when they should add and that's quite tricky because you can teach students very easily how to add but getting them to recognize when a word problem or a real life problem requires addition is a whole other level of pedagogy. So Mm -hmm. much greater pedagogical challenge. So that's one kind of challenge that I often come across. You know, when there's a curriculum change in a country, I will often get approached as somebody that can help update resources to address that curriculum change. Or I might just be asked by education resource provider um, to look at their current offering and check that, you know, where there's any gaps or where they might be given the edge over a competitor, what they can do to be to get the edge. Or I might be asked by somebody to do some research into how their resources are working or what teachers and learners could benefit from in education research. And then sometimes, particularly with tech companies, where new technology might come out, I might be approached to say, or oh, how can we use this new technology to... Um, enhance teaching and learning in mathematics 
in which case it might be a case of getting to grips with the technology and then thinking about it from a pedagogical perspective. And then sometimes I get involved in the design itself. So an organization may already have decided that they're going to do this product, but want some input on how to design it in the best possible way. So it's quite broad, really. It's very varied. Also, as much as possible, I try and not only think about the mathematical concepts, but also those non-cognitive skills and how they can be integrated into maths education resources. So things like self-belief, resilience, tenacity, and that's a mindfulness, those kind of things to address maths anxiety. Mm. And more and more I'm getting asked about that, Mm. which is, is great because I think they're as important as understanding the maths concepts themselves. Absolutely. And to be able to understand it, there are so many different aspects that play a role in that. Uh, Math anxiety can completely inhibit a child from learning when they would be perfectly capable of learning the maths. Or an adult. It's amazing how many adults with maths anxiety a fear of anything mathematical in in their jobs it's that kind of belief in yourself and that you can understand it at some point even if you don't understand it now is really important part of maths education definitely that is huge and so you really look at the subject matter very holistically both in terms of changing curriculum looking at the type of pedagogies that are needed in the classroom and the tools required for it and also in designing the tools designing the textbooks. I know you've written a lot of textbooks as well, and also the technology tools. So focusing on the technology, what are some of your favorite, or maybe it's not technological, but what are some of your favorite math resources and tools and why are they your favorite? This is a difficult one because I think there isn't exactly a favorite resource or tool, but rather elements that I look for and what I consider to be a really good resource or tool. So I'm not a great believer in telling. So I, I don't like to just tell students that this is a rule, but rather getting students to explore for themselves and asking them kind of what they notice to kind of get to the rule themselves. Because by building up something that you're noticing, then you're embedding some understanding. Whereas if I just tell you a mathematical rule, then you've just got to remember it and it may have no meaning. Mm -hmm. So for example, getting students to draw squares on the sides of right angle triangles and asking them to look at what they notice about the relationships between the areas of those squares. So leading them into understanding Pythagoras' theorem Mm -hmm. rather than simply stating the theorem that the square on the hypotenuse is equal to the square on the other two sides, which is a Mm -hmm. whole loads of words. which doesn't really have any meaning. So if I've drawn lots of squares on the sides of right angle triangles and found their areas, then suddenly that those words have a meaning. So I definitely look for tools and resources that help students explore in order to reach an understanding rather than just tell them something. Um, And the other thing that I really look for is an element of, I suppose, um, you might call it metacognition or an opportunity to reflect either on the maths itself or on the learning of the maths Mm. or how, or how it feels to learn the maths. Because I think when you stop and think and you're forced to do that, then you gain a better understanding as well. So asking not just questions that involve working with or, or calculating with fractions say, but also asking questions about the fractions. So for example, if we were learning fractions, Kinga, I might say to you, tell me what's the easiest fraction that you can think of? A quarter. A quarter, brilliant. Now tell me a hard fraction. Can you think of any hard fraction? A hard fraction would be one eighteenth. would be a hard Perfect. fraction. So now I might say to you, Okay, so you've told me a quarter is an easy fraction and an 18th is a hard fraction. What is it that makes a quarter easy? And what is it that makes an 18th hard? It's those kinds of questions, those kind Mm -hmm. of metacognitive questions that actually make you start to think because, because when you think of a quarter, probably what makes it seem easy is I'm guessing it's got a small denominator or you can visualize it in some way. Mm -hmm. Or but an 18th, 18 is not an easy number to deal with. Exactly. So, you know, if you're looking at equivalent fractions, it's not easy to, you know, if you're, mm-hmm. I ask you to visualize 18, that's quite hard. Exactly. <laughs> and it's also not something that is in our daily 
repertoire. If yeah. one, is one, one out of a hundred, then it would be easy because it's something we use very often in the way we have our world structured, but, or one-tenth, but one eighteenth we don't actually use ever, do we? So No, no, yeah. exactly. So now, you know, we've not just worked with fractions, but we've really thought about the nature of fractions. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, we've had a whole conversation about, you know, real life fractions, denominators, equivalent fractions, visualizing fractions, you know, the whole thing kind of gains a depth mm -hmm. that you don't get if you're just working on calculations with fractions. So Absolutely. those are the two things that I really look for in really good resources and tools. One, not telling, but allowing students to explore and find things out for themselves. And two, taking it deeper through metacognition. Mm, and that's such an incredibly important one because it really doesn't relate only to math at all. It relates mm -hmm. to absolutely everything and to all age groups, having the time and being guided through a reflection on what you've learned and how you're going to apply it is so critical, isn't it? In workplace learning, in in any type of learning. Yeah, and I like you say, I think it applies across the spectrum to, mm -hmm. to stop and reflect and ask those kind of questions. Well, there's no there's no right or wrong answer either. It's it's whatever you think, but then yes. to kind of then go further and say, well, why do you think that? Mm -hmm. And it just makes makes understanding deeper. And you're using the language of, you know, in the question I just asked you, we used a bit of language of fractions as well. And it, it's just making it all a bit more familiar and yes. a bit more subjective and a little bit more. And more engaged with what you are learning because you're not just receiving. Yeah. Yeah. And next time you come across a fraction, mm -hmm. I bet it'll make you think of this conversation. Definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. And I wonder if that fraction will be 118th, wouldn't that be funny? <laughs> I'm sure it will be. It will be. <laughs> so in maths education, what comes up again and again that you really wish would be fixed or changed? You've worked in so many different sectors on this topic and in different countries and different education systems. Is there something that comes up again and again and you just think, I really wish that we could just address this? Okay, so this is something that's probably quite specific to Western culture, but it's if I could change one thing, it would be the fact that it's okay not to be good at math. So this isn't the case in, say, China, but mm -hmm. in England and probably in Canada and certainly in the US, it's okay to say, I'm just hopeless at math and then think that is okay, whereas you would never say, you know what, I can't really read. Yeah. No one would say that. It's a badge of shame. Mm -hmm. to say I can't really read but there's no shame attached to being terrible at math so that is one thing that I would definitely change and it infuriates me I mean, even this week in the news the Duchess of Cambridge was asked about homeschooling her children and she was asked how to rate her skills at helping them with math and she gave herself a minus five wow that's interesting and I thought, yeah and she was asked to give it zero to ten she gave a minus five and I just thought that's just terrible that she thinks that's okay to say one in front of her children, but two in the public domain. So that's something I would definitely fix. And, and we aren't talking about calculus, are we? I mean, we're not talking about complex or even, even intermediate math. I mean, her children are extremely young, really balancing your checkbook and adding up at the cashier how much you've just spent and making sure that you were charged the right amount or calculating the interest on your car or your house is actually more complicated than what her children would be doing in the, in school at this stage. And it's stage. not a pick on her, it's just across the board, it's, it's considered okay for a parent. Because the truth is it's not that these individuals who say it wouldn't be able to calculate what they've just spent or the mortgage they're gonna to have to pay on their house, but why is it okay to fear it so much, to say that I couldn't, even when actually I'm sure you could because you do it in other contexts that isn't a math class. So yeah. it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting discussion that has come up again and again and, and is very striking when you think about it in terms of who would tell you actually I'm a terrible speller, which a lot of people are. A lot of people are terrible spellers 
But nobody would ever really say that, would they? Much less to say, I don't know how to read. Yeah, exactly. So that's something that drives me nuts because it kind of, it suggests that that's okay. It's okay to be terrible at math. And then, and, you know, with each generation that passes that on, you then face another barrier to learning mm-hmm. mathematics or another barrier to, to doing maths in your job or whatever. If we got rid of that, if we could fix that, that would be brilliant. And the other thing, now I'm on a roll on what I'd like to fix. <laughs> but the other thing I really want to fix is the fact that because you've learned maths at school doesn't mean you can teach maths. So the thing I really hate, so the BBC, and again, not to pick on, I shouldn't really pick on particular people or particular organisations, but the BBC have done some maths help for students while they're in lockdown. And they've got celebrities, people from the telly and from film and stuff to do to do maths teaching. Well, that mm. is really very insulting to people that have spent yes. a long time thinking about the best way to teach mathematics so and in true. the news yesterday there was a thing saying that Rishi Sunak is our chancellor in the UK has you know, clearly as a publicity thing has been teaching some students mathematics and mm. I just thought this is really insulting because mm. that you haven't spent the time thinking about the best way to teach something because you can't or reading the research papers around that concept, because that's not your job. And we wouldn't send our health secretary into an operating theatre and say, right then, as your health secretary, why not do a bit of surgery? We (laughs) We just wouldn't do that. So why is it okay to get celebrities or politicians teaching mathematics? That's just wrong. It is interesting how it's uh, the other extreme, which is also a very unhelpful extreme, because On the one hand, what you are saying is that just very nonchalantly saying that you are not good at math and not good at basic math really is what you're talking about. We're not referring to high level university math is saying that actually the hurdle is so big. It's so difficult that it's almost impossible for you to overcome it because I, as a grown up, also don't know how to do that, which already puts up a wall when you think, wow, it's so hard even before you start trying. And on the other extreme is this notion that, well, I've learned math, so I can teach math. And um, it's a very peculiar kind of dichotomy where I don't know where that comes from. No, I don't either. And I think it's fine to say, I don't really know how to teach it, but let's struggle through this problem together or or even struggle. But let's look at this problem together and see how we can solve it together. That is fine. But on the one hand, say oh my goodness, I'm no good at maths, let's, you know, I don't know how to do that problem either, mm-hmm. is, is terrible because you're suggesting that's okay. And on the other extreme, like you say, pretending that you can be the best math teacher in the world when you haven't done the training and you haven't done the reflecting and you haven't done the reading and you haven't, you, you spend years as a math teacher or any teacher kind of teaching something not very well and thinking, hmm, why didn't that go well? I didn't expect that question or I didn't expect students to understand it like that. Next time I'll teach it like this in the hope that that doesn't come up and you teach it a different way the next time. Then something else comes up and you think, hmm, that didn't really work. If I tweak it like this, I wonder if they'll better understand it next time. And you gradually form a craft and expertise. It is not a matter of having been on Big Brother or Love Island and being recognisable to students and then going, I'll tell you what, we'll get you, who's a celebrity, to come and teach something to students. That's just not right. It could be like, let me do this math problem and think through it as I do it, exemplifying that I'm doing something that you're trying to do as well and maybe learning along the way so with all your experience in the field what is the one thing you wish people would know or do who work in math education okay so I think in the UK there's something like 200,000 primary teachers and around 25,000 secondary math teachers so that's 225,000 adults teaching maths in the just in the UK and then there's this whole raft of research that's going on in universities and and in in 
other places, looking at the best way to teach certain mathematical concepts. Mm -hmm. And yet the two don't seem to go together at all. Mm -hmm. So we take a concept like, I don't know, solving equations, and we've got 225,000 teachers teaching it in slightly different ways when there's a whole raft of research about the best Mm -hmm. way to teach equations. Mm -hmm. So surely... Given that we've got all this technology and it's so easy now to produce videos, surely we can have agreement on the best possible way to teach solving equations where students will understand it. We could video it and share it among those 225,000 teachers and give every student the chance to meet a new concept in the best possible way that they may understand it rather than you know I don't know what it's like in Canada but primary teachers here get very little training in math education very Mm. little so we've got this whole raft of teachers that that haven't many of whom don't feel confident in math already and then haven't had training in how to teach math who are teaching these concepts and then we've got the technology and the research and the expertise also in the country which would mean that those concepts could be taught so much better why the heck are we not doing that Mm. so that's the one thing I wish people would do in math education is share the best way to teach concepts and it's not people will say people listening to this will say you're taking away the role of the teacher and I don't think I am I'm not saying or dictating that every teacher uses a video in the same way, that every teacher plays it through from start to finish and asks the same question and does the same activity afterwards. Or that, you know, or Mm -hmm. some teachers might choose to play only the first 10 seconds and then ask a question of their Mm -hmm. students. Or, you know, know that they've got students with poor attention span, so just play a little bit, discuss what they've learned and understood from that little bit. Other teachers might decide to play it all the way through. Other teachers might chop it in half and do an activity in the middle. I don't want to take away the role of the teacher in the classroom. I think that role is essential. And I think responding to your students, the particular students you have is essential. What I want to take away is the variability in the way a concept in maths is introduced to students. Mm-hmm. So there is no longer a lottery of whether you've been introduced to a concept in the, the best way to understand it or not. Absolutely. That's hugely important. That. Mm-hmm. Can you make that happen for me, Kinga? Well, that's a very, that's actually one of the central parts of this podcast series, where it's bringing together the art, so the practice and the science of learning, because it is, there's a huge gulf of a disconnect, not just in math education, as you know, but in, in so many other aspects, where the research is very rich and very rigorous. And there's also amazing practice that is happening in the field, but the two just don't talk. You know, a lot can be gained both in research and in practice from understanding the other side. But at the same time, there needs to be a way to disseminate this information, because as you said, you're not trying to take away from the teacher, but the researcher is spending all of their time reading research, creating and building on that knowledge to generate better research, more advanced research. That's their full-time job. So a teacher whose full-time job is to teach cannot be expected to also have the added full-time job of reading through all the research. So it it needs to be disseminated to to the key highlights the same way someone who's a researcher cannot be expected to be teaching full-time. Almost need a translator in the middle, maybe a middle role that's that's the translator between the research that does something practical that the teacher just wants to grab hold of and run with Mm -hmm. we kind of need that that intermediary section role I think um but it does it really upsets me when you know I'll go into a school and I'll see fractions or something or division or subtraction or something taught really badly and it's not that the teacher is a bad teacher necessarily Mm -hmm. they might have a really good rapport with their students and they might be really good listeners and they might you know one-to-one have a great way of explaining something to a student that doesn't get it 
But introducing the concept, they've just never had the time. Like you say, they haven't read the papers, they haven't. So, so it's very confusing when they've actually introduced the concept. So it's no wonder that the students don't really get it. Mm-hmm. And it just seems crazy in the current world that we live in that that's still going on. Absolutely. And it does need to be a current, uh, continuous learning. But for mm-hmm. that, there does need to be, as you said, a middle person that translates and disseminates and narrows down the information. That's a really, really important one to jump into two big categories in the ways that technology can improve math education. We decided to look at visualization and personalization and how different technologies in those fields impact math education. So to start with visualization, what does this mean for you in math education, visualization, technologies Mm -hmm. that help to visualize? Visualization is such a key part of mathematics to make it simple because it's quite a big word isn't it all I'm talking about is what you see in your head when we talk about a maths concept Mm -hmm. so on a simple level if I say the word triangle what do you see in your head Kinga yes I see the three points and the lines in between yeah and you can't you can't avoid that you didn't see the word triangle did Mm -hmm. you you saw exactly a triangle and you know if I ask you to count up from negative three to four what do you see this is quite interesting there isn't a right answer I do see the numbers I don't see the amounts I do see the the digits of three four and five okay it really I guess depends on different people yeah exactly so some people might see a number line counting some Mm -hmm. people might see a thermometer because they've seen a negative three on a thermometer or whatever Mm -hmm. if I talk about 50 percent for example what what do you see in your head then I see something that is half full like a glass half full okay (laughs) see so we're all visualizing different things and we're visualizing them according to our understanding of the mathematical concept and that's what I mean by visualization is what yeah. you see in your head and then there's no right or wrong answer because we'll all visualize something different so you saw mm-hmm. half a glass full or something like that if the other per- person might see cake cut in half or something for 50 yes. no it's a, it's a very important Maddox because being able to visualize is being able to then convert the numbers to something that's what they represent and being able to play back and forth. And um, in fact, I've, I remember reading research that if children at a very young age play more physically with blocks and with uh, three-dimensional objects, then they will have a better ability to visualize three-dimensional objects, which then becomes quite difficult. And, and, and it's those challenging aspects of visualization when we go past the, the simple ones where it becomes a challenge. And that's where the technology comes in, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And so some, what are some examples of tools that you think do a really exceptional job in helping to visualize? There's some great interactive geometry software, for example, might allow you to change the length of sides of a polygon and see what happens to it, to the angles or to change the gradient of a graph and see what happens to its equation mm-hmm. or to move the graph up and down the axes and see what happens to the equation. So interactive geometry software is invaluable for obviously learning geometric um, concepts. Right. And is, you know, when you try and without it, when you try and say to a student, visualize a pentagon, then you get into all kinds of problems of, have they visualized a regular pentagon? Have they visualized an irregular pentagon? Has their pentagon definitely got five sides? You know, mm-hmm. so it, the interactive geometry software allows you to sh- allows a student to do what they want to do and manipulate an image in the way that they want to do it for their understanding. But it allows you to share that image in a way that we can't share if it's inside somebody else's head. Mm-hmm. So, interactive geometry software is definitely something that is a brilliant technological tool. Another thing is Zoom functions, which is not really a piece of software or anything. It's a feature, I suppose. But I think Zoom functions are immensely helpful for mathematical understanding. So if you take a number line and we zoom in between zero and one, we might see the decimals between zero and one to one decimal place. So we might see 0.1, 0.2, 0.3, all yes. the way up to one. And then if we zoom in between 
0 and 0.1, then we might see the hundred. So mm -hmm. 0 0.01, 0.02, and so on. And so we can start to see how numbers are divided and are, are created, if you like, by keep zooming on in. And then if we, if we had the ability to switch between decimal fraction percentage, we can then see, you know, the 0.01 represented as 1% and the whole number line as percentages or as fractions. Or So I think a zoom function for maths, and it, and it can be used elsewhere too, like zooming in on a graph mm -hmm. is really helpful. Yes. Um, you know, on graph axes, that's really helpful. Again, that's just zooming in on a number line. A zoom feature is really helpful for mathematical understanding, especially of number. And then there's something that's much more modern, of course, which is augmented or mixed reality mm -hmm. technologies, which are, are fairly new, which allow us to harness, and you touched on it before when you spoke about 3D blocks, with augmented reality, we can harness 3D-ness for mathematical uh, visualization. So you can wear a headset, you see the room around you, but you can insert virtual objects into, into that room and interact with them. Right. So gone are the days of trying to explain to a student where the right angle triangle is in a pyramid, because actually you could have a virtual pyramid in front of you and the student could stand inside it and draw lines from its vertices and see for themselves where the right angled triangles are. So I guess what this allows, what the augmented and virtual and mixed reality technologies allow is for 3D representation that's traditionally been on a 2D piece of paper or a 2D screen mm -hmm. to actually be represented 3D in yes. a way that we've never had before, which is phenomenal especially for higher level mathematics so you know when you start to get into three-dimensional cartesian coordinates so not just x and y axes which we typically teach lower down the school you know and yeah. it's a 2d x and y mm -hmm. but x y and z which is in a 3d cartesian coordinates and you know and you've got a point that is x y and z so it's a point in space trying to represent that or explain that on a whiteboard or okay. <laughs> on a piece of paper is really hard. Students with headsets that can actually see the 3D-ness and you can share it with them is amazing. Yes. So that's an example of a very modern approach. And of course, it's still quite niche to have 3D headsets, isn't it? But, but it's definitely going to make a big difference to some of those more difficult concepts that you try and see. Absolutely. I mean, being able to see how even, you know, equations transfer to what they actually represent in so many mm -hmm. cases, having a 3D representation would make it so much easier and being able to zoom in different aspects would make it so much easier, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, to do that. Right. So it's not just very often the technologies in education are often for the younger grades, aren't they? But in fact, with this type of visualization, calculus would be made much easier understood. I mean, there's a huge spectrum of applications for it. So that's, uh, that's great. So what do you yeah. think are some of the pedagogical approaches that teachers can take in this regard? I suppose bringing together some things that I've spoken about before. So getting students to explore for themselves mm -hmm. and also asking those cognitive questions so the what if type questions so we've explored the area of squares on the sides of right angle triangles and we've discovered you know we haven't discovered Pythagoras theorem but we've understood Pythagoras theorem because we've actually done the drawing and now we could because we've got interactive geometry software why don't we try it for an isosceles triangle, is there a relationship between this, the area of the squares on isosceles triangles and, you know, in the same way that there is for right angle triangles? I don't know. Perhaps there is, perhaps there isn't. What about on other shapes? Suddenly we can ask those deeper questions because the technology is there to support us answering them. Right. And so I think the pedagogical approaches are the same, the same things that I look for you know, in any good resource or tool, which is, can the students explore for themselves? And are there good reflect kind of what if questions or 
questions about their learning that they can answer because the technology allows them to do it. And do you think there's any pitfalls in the terms of the way the technology is designed or in the way that it's used in the classroom that should be avoided? My big bugbear, my big bugbear is, right, we've got this new technology, so let's just use it right across the curriculum in every single concept. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And you know what? People find it fun. That's the thing I really hate because one, yeah, new technology is fun. But once it becomes familiar, the, the funness goes. Yes, so the novelty yeah, goes. And so it's no longer fun. And two, it's great to be able to use augmented reality or mixed reality to explore 3D shape. Does it really have a place in learning thirds or square roots or you know, or highest common factor. No, because they're kind of two-dimensional concepts. Mm, So why on earth would we start to use mixed reality to learn that? And and it's one of the things I really hate. So I know we're not particularly going to touch on games today because that's such a massive topic, but it's like the game thing. People realise that gaming is motivational, that you could do maths games, and games definitely have a, a role to play in maths learning. But then they'll put every concept in a game and introduce catching butterflies or something like that, which has nothing to do mm-hmm. with conceptual understanding. So, Absolutely. so where it goes wrong is when somebody is driven by the technology rather than the learning. That's when it goes wrong. I think that puts it into a very concise phrase when you're driven by the technology, when you don't use it as a window to seeing things better, rather you're focusing on the window. The window is new and it's shiny rather than focusing on the fact that what do you see through the window? That's so, so important because it's true in so many things where we jump on the new fad of either a technology or a different way of working or whatever it might be. We jump on the bandwagon rather than say, well, what is it good for? And maybe the old stuff is really good for certain things and the new one is really good for a different aspect of it. So to combine that is is so critical. That's really good. So as you said, there's a million different things we can talk about in terms of technology and math education or education overall. But apart from visualization, another big aspect is personalization and how to personalize learning which has become a very, very big topic. So what does that mean to you in terms of math education? The problem with something like personalization as a concept is it's been banded around such a lot that people have used it where it wasn't intended, Mm -hmm. where, where it has no meaning. So I have seen, for example, education software that says it's personalized because you can change the color of the background and have an avatar. That isn't personalized learning. You might be able to personalize it to your taste, but it's not, it's nothing to do with learning. So personalization in the context of learning is definitely about adapting, it allowing you to adapt your route to understanding. So you and I might be learning the same thing, but our route to get to the understanding may well be different because mm-hmm. of our prior knowledge, because of our the explanations we come along across along the way, because of the activities we do along the way. It might be personalized to each of us, but we get to the same point. And that's what personalized learning is. It isn't about choosing a color or an avatar. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, because sometimes you need to practice certain skills more than someone else does. And for the machine to recognize that or to recognize where you're making the mistakes, isn't it, in math? It's particularly important. I mean, in certain math problems, there's a lot of different places where you could be making your error. And if it's always the similar type of error, then there's something else you need to practice, which is great. Again, this is a very, very big topic in itself, personalization. But what are some of the tools that you think do this very well? I don't think there is anything particularly amazing about some of the best personalization tools that I've come across. Some of the best ones are actually tools that ask multiple choice questions, but where the distractors are so carefully crafted that they can identify the misconception that you've got. So giving an example, you know, which is bigger, 0.38 or 0.4? Mm -hmm. Many students will have 
the misconception that 0.38 is bigger than 0.4 because they'll see the digits 38, read it as 38, and 38 is bigger than four, rather than looking at the fact that there's only three tenths in 0.38, but a four tenth in 0.4. So where you ask that kind of question and catch, you, you've got a, uh, you've asked a specific question that enables you to reveal if students have got a misconception. And the sooner that kind of question comes up, the better, because it means that the misconception hasn't become embedded yet. So it's easier to challenge at an early stage. So the kind of software that just asks simple multiple choice questions where the distractors are very carefully crafted or the questions are very carefully crafted to catch misun misunderstandings and misconceptions early, they are that is a really good piece of software and it doesn't have to be whizzy in any way. But then if it not only does that, but also gives an activity which allows you to chat, it doesn't just tell you why 0.4 is greater than 3.8, but gives you an activity that allows you to see why. So again, it links back to visualization, doesn't it? You know, so it might be a 10 by 10 grid that shows where you get the opportunity to shade in 0.4, so yes. four tenths of it, and shade in 0.38. So you can actually see that 0.4 is bigger than 0.38. You know, so there's actually, it's not just about asking the multiple choice question and seeing where the misconception is, but it's also about challenging it in a way that a student can see for themselves why the misconception is wrong. And getting in there early is really important. The other thing that I'm very good in some software in terms of personalization is the spaced learning, which is really interesting concept of revisiting concepts again and again, but mm -hmm. increasing the interval of time in between revisiting them. Right. And by doing that, you're moving the understanding of the concept from the short-term memory into the long-term memory. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily, and I do this a lot in textbooks, it doesn't necessarily mean doing the same. So you've learned about solving equations. It doesn't mean that two weeks later, and then four weeks after that, and then three months after that, you have to do a whole load of solving equation activities and, and, and tests or whatever. Right. Again, what it means is two weeks after that, four weeks after that, and then two, three months after that, you are meeting solving equations again. So two weeks after that, you might be looking at angles in a triangle, but one of those angles might be X mm -hmm. and you might be asked or, you know, another one might be 2x and the third one might be 3x and you might be asked to write an equation and solve it to find the value of x. So you, you've got to apply your understanding of that new concept, which is about angles in a triangle, right. but you've got to use the knowledge of solving equations which you learned two weeks ago. Mm. So it's about revisiting those concepts at intervals where the intervals get bigger and bigger but not necessarily having to revisit them in exactly the same way. But it means that you've got a better opportunity for the understanding to get embedded into your long-term memory. And software that allows you to do that, because as a teacher, it's quite hard. You're focusing on, right, this week, I'm gonna be teaching them trigonometry. You haven't really got the capacity to then go, right, well, three weeks ago, we learned solving equations. Two months ago, we learned fractions like six months ago, we learned ratios. So I need to get those concepts in as, as well. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're, any teacher that can do that is superhuman. You just cannot. <laughs> so it's a really great use of technology to, to be able to track that spaced learning. And if, you know, and the icing on the cake is then if it's adaptive so that it can pick up misconceptions quickly, that then that to me is real personalized learning. And it might be that you don't, have that misconception about decimals that I just spoken about but uh, somebody else does and so yes. you might be moving on quicker it might be that you demonstrate that your understanding of decimals has become embedded in your long-term memory and you had a complete understanding of it much quicker so you may not need to revisit it 
quite as often as somebody else but it's mm. it's all about the individual and technology can be so powerful in personalizing learning in that way yes. I'm not sure there's anything out there that I've not seen anything out there that does both those things brilliantly together but but it's something to aim for definitely absolutely and one of the difficult things in technology in educational technology is that it's there's such a huge market out there of resources, of technology resources that claim to be doing pretty much the same thing often. So it makes it really hard for teachers to select the right one. And in terms of this type of personalization in math lear- in learning math, there's a lot of subtlety in it that you don't know if it is in the system or not until you really go through it. So what should be some of the things that teachers or schools look for when they're trying to find the right technology? Are there pedagogical descriptions and an outline of the pedagogical approach? Weirdly, when when you work on education resources, you spend a lot of time doing teacher notes rather than writing the resource. It can take a long time to write the teacher notes that go with the resource. Mm -hmm. But strangely, when you speak to teachers, they hardly ever look at them. And I think this is such a shame because actually we spend a lot of time kind of thinking about why did we ask that question and and writing the notes around it and suggesting ways in which teachers can enhance the use of that question or the use of that activity in the classroom. So I would say rather than, if I had one piece of advice for teachers, I would say if you're choosing some software, yes, by all means, ask for a demo of the software, but ask for the teacher notes because Mm -hmm. that will show you and look at the teacher notes. It will show you the thinking behind the activities if it doesn't have teacher notes then don't buy it because where's the pedagogical philosophy underpinning what what they've done if it does have teacher notes and they're good and it says we've asked this question to catch students who you know might have developed this misconception or we've asked this question and for students that don't understand it we suggest you do this activity because and then come back to this question. It shows all the pedagogical thought that goes behind it. So the teacher notes are super important. Even if you, having decided to buy a piece of software, you never look at them again. It should definitely be part of the decision-making. And so should the reporting, because you can have the best kind of software for learning, but if you're getting all that information about 30 students in your class, and they didn't get question five, you know, this, this student didn't answer question five correctly, but that student answered question five correctly and didn't answer question seven correctly. That's, that's important information, but it's not enough if you've got to read through that for 30 students and then you've got to look up what question five was and you've got to decipher for yourself that that question was about, that showed that they didn't, you know, they didn't answer that correctly. So it showed they didn't understand simplifying expressions or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. If you've got to do all that interpretive work yourself, then that, it's never going to happen because you're a busy teacher. It's just not. So you mm. want as, as important as the software itself for teaching and learning is the reporting behind it. Because what you want to be able to do is look up and go, oh, right, Kinga got question five wrong. And that means she doesn't really understand that. And next lesson, she needs to address this. So it's kind of telling me what I need to do with that student rather than me having to do all the interpretative work. That's really important. In a way, my advice is, that whoever produces a resource will be looking to hopefully make the learning for the student as good as possible. Mm -hmm. So a reasonable, if it's got good reviews and so on, you can expect it to be doing the learning bit. Mm -hmm. But the thing that you really need to look at are the, the other bits that go with it. They're really revealing the teacher notes and the reporting. And the teacher notes and the reporting, not only is it extremely important for the teacher to make their job more focused and more direct, but also it shows that there's a lot of thought being put into what was designed. So it wasn't just a question number five, wasn't just a question that we pulled out of a hat in this genre of questions. We pulled it out of a hat for a very specific reason, for the reason to show this and this skill. So unless they're able to say that, that also says maybe they didn't think about the skills that they were trying to teach. So that's a really important thing to ask about and to think about when you're looking at a product. And actually, you know what? It doesn't take that long. If I'm I'm to review a product 
I will always ask with all the, for all the stuff that goes with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, very quickly, if I've got a product that's, you know, covering 10 different broad mathematics concepts and there's a two-page printout that's a teacher notes, I've already made a dis- I, you know, I've already made a judgment about that product that there's not great po- pedagogy that goes behind it or mm. that they haven't captured the pedagogy that goes behind it. And so there's not going to be great support for the teacher. You know, there's all sorts of, it, it takes me all of two minutes to see that the teacher notes are two pages. Yeah. It doesn't take that long to, to reach judgments. Right. That's really good. That's really, really good tip. So is there something about math education or the resources for math education that you wish people would know about? I wish that there was a definitive kind of how to be discerning about what you use, Mm. specifically on the internet. Mm -hmm. So I quite often come across teachers who say, so I had to teach factors and multiples on Tuesday. So I went to the internet and it was great. There was 10 worksheets I could download and print. And I'm like, just because there's 10 worksheets you can download and print doesn't mean that they're great worksheets. And so I wish that there was a very easy to use kind of guide to making good decisions about the resources that you get for free from the internet. That would be brilliant. That would. That was a huge topic in my my own research as well, because all the teachers said that really it's an enormous amount of time and effort to go through the resources that all seem great. And it's really hard to to tell the difference unless you start really digging into it. And it would be important to have some way of filtering and rating or categorizing or somehow for teachers to make it easier to understand what exactly is in that product and which ones are the best to choose because it's a very saturated field. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the internet is a wonderful thing for education, but at the same time, it's not wonderful because... Yeah. It needs curation. Yeah. Well, this is... Uh, you gave a lot of wonderful and really insightful tips. That's really great. But before we end, and we could have talked about this topic for a lot longer and with a lot more <laughs> different aspects of it. But for now, I just wanted to ask you before we end, if you have a recommendation for something to read or to listen to that inspires you in this area? So there's a book that I came across many, many years ago when I was training to be a maths teacher. And it's really battered. My copy's really battered now, but I go back to it a lot because it's a different kind of perspective on mathematics, but it's a great, great book. It's called The Mathematical Experience. And it's by Philip Davis and Reuben Hirsch. And it's just kind of why everyone should love mathematics, really. Mm. And the mathematics behind so much of our lives. It's less about mathematics and more about life, really. But it tells some wonderful stories. And it's just a great book. So whenever somebody says, I hated mathematics at school, I always point them to this book. It's quite old now, but um, yeah, so that would be my recommendation. That sounds wonderful. Thank you. I, I want to go and read it now. That sounds really very interesting. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you. Well, Naomi, as always, it's really, really interesting to, to talk to you about all aspects of education. And uh, thank you for sharing your insights on math education and the technologies that can really improve math education. I really appreciate that and sharing your, your wisdom and, and many years of experience. So thank you. Thank you.